This episode, we're off to the world's largest continent, where we'll see a couple of dude bros do what dude bros do best. Claim ownership over land and sentient creatures alike, get into a dick measuring contest, and commit assault. And for our fact, we're going off on a bit of an etymological bent as we discover the origin of a word we've already used multiple times on the show. Okay, okay, so maybe I was a little harsh towards men with that intro. You must be new around these parts. Poking fun at males throughout mythology is pretty much just what we do here on the Colored Folklore Podcast. Episode 6, Asia, Tunguzic Creation Myth. What up, y'all? Welcome to your Monday, the start of the work week, the second half of the month of January. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Introing the show there, as they oft do, was all good folks with their track, Mr. Mischief. Gracing us with a super tight podcast logo is Arthur. And blessing us with crazy cool podcast cover art is Jacqueline. Speaking of such, I didn't and don't have any imagery conveying the protagonist and antagonist of today's episode, so I couldn't provide a single reference image for today. (laughs) I am still sorry for that, and sorry because the exact same thing will happen in an upcoming show that she doesn't know yet about and is finding out about right now for the very first time. I'm sorry! Providing her with as much Tungusic imagery and culture that I could... She was then able to put together the awesome, battle-centric piece that she did, and for that we thank her. Speaking of giving thanks, we have a lovely announcement for today's show. We were made aware recently that this podcast had been listed as a top fairy tale podcast. This is through a Feedspot blog, which, for those of you that don't know, is a content reader useful for monitoring all of your stomping grounds in one convenient location. Blogs, RSS feeds, social media accounts, news updates, you name it. Link it to your Feedspot account and go to one location to get all of your info instead of, like, 20. My man a nudge wrote me directly and let me know of our listing on the top 30 fairy tale podcast you must follow in 2021. I was like, oh, sweet bet. Went to check it out and we're listed third. I I was and am extremely honored and enthused to to see this, to say the very least. Uh, in fact, three of the podcasts that we were listed above, they were used as references during development of this very podcast. And and one of those, in my opinion, is an absolute titan that I've heard every single episode of in a catalog of over a hundred. Now to directly shout out the top two. Coming in at number two, we have Fairy Tale with Ariel through Buzzsprout. And, of course, for number one, the Story Story Podcast, which is just about to hit their 200th episode. Congrats and well wishes to everyone on the list. We've linked to the list, to the top two, and a nudge in our show notes. If you get the chance, head on over, give everyone a listen, give them some love, and keep keep reading and keep listening to Fairy tales. If there is one thing that you should do in 2021, listen to a fairy tale. No, you know, really, if there's one thing you should do, be kind to another human being, please. I mean, at least 
once a day. But if there are two things that you do, let the second one be read or listen to some type of myth or legend or fable or fairy tale or you know what, you know the drill. And speaking of legacy storytelling, today we're making our way from the oceanic culture of indigenous Australians and their son-mother spirit-waking creation story to the varied, diverse indigenous people spread throughout Asia. The Tunguzic people of today's episode remind me of a similar grouping much like episode 3 from North America. In that episode, we learned that the Iroquois Confederacy is made up of six nations. And we took a look at one of the nations making up said confederacy and their creation story, Sky Woman. Here, we're going to do a bit of the reverse. The Tunguzic people are made up of 10 to 17 groups, depending on how the people are grouped together. And Tunguzic, the word itself, can refer to the location or it can refer to the language that's being spoken. We're going to first take a look at the word Tunguzic itself. I found multiple possibilities where this word slash title came from. Number one, Manchu Tungus. This is actually interchangeable with Tungusic and refers directly to the language family. Simple. Makes sense. Number two, Tungus. That's Russian, probably a terrible pronunciation, and is the word for one of the groups, the specific ethnic groups that I mentioned earlier. Number three, Tunguz. It's East Turkic, and it's one of the more mentioned suggestions of where the name came from, and it means wild pig or boar. Number four, Tungusk. It's German, used by explorers, including our boy Muller, in describing the people from that region. Number five, Donggu. It's Chinese, means East Barbarians. And last but not least, number six, Donki. This is actually a word from the Tunguzic language itself, and it means men. So, <laughs> me personally, I kind of lean towards maybe this is where the word came from, being that it's, uh, you know, from the people themselves. Now, as far as location goes, Tunguska is in eastern Siberia and bordered on the east by the Pacific Ocean and on the west by the Tunguska Rivers. Two rivers that are part of the Yenisei River Basin, the fifth largest river system on the planet. This is a section of Asia way up top in the upper portion of Russia. In fact, the Tunguzic people can be located throughout that region from the river system, which is about in the middle of the continent to the ocean from northern China all the way up to northern Russia. It's postulated by the scientific community that Tunguzic peoples began in Manchuria prior to 3500 BCE, before Common Era. As the Tunguzic people began to spread throughout the region, each of the individual groups began to adopt local cultural influences into their own way of life. For instance, the Udagay, the Uchi, and the Nanai merged Chinese symbolism into their domestic lifestyle in everything from cookware to clothes as well as ceremonial procedures and elements. The Manchu ethnic group, on the flip, were almost completely absorbed by the regional Han population. Starting with the Qing dynasty in the 1600s, it's only accelerated more every single century since. The groupings of these people, as well as their languages, can be divided into, that's right, two further groups, northern and southern. And 
This is where I was going to review the languages, but I ran across something that I'd like to share instead. From The Psychomental Complex of the Tungus, Volume 1, Chapter 33. By the way, there are four volumes and 134 chapters, and I quote, I will not here go into the details of the Tungus language, which would require too much space. Now, if this big old book was like, whoa, buddy, that's that's just too much info, I'm not sure exactly what I could do here other than just babble. I said other than, other than just babble. Get it? Because that's a type. You know what? You're welcome. One thing, however, that I can comment on groan-free is that the language groups of the Tungusic people are all in great peril, with experts not sure how many languages will actually survive the century. With a very strong Russian cultural oversight and older generations only speaking their Tungusic language at home on a smaller personal scale rather than teaching it and using it out in the open. It's more important than ever to put the time in and the effort in to study and record a people whose location may be spread in a vast way, but whose numbers are dwindling more every single year. According to the same monster of a book, the folklore of the Tungusic people still has yet to be properly documented. Lucky for us, these people have a creation story that rings relatively similar throughout each of the ethnic groups. The tale gives birth not only to our very planet, but to our species itself, containing mystical creatures with incredible powers and elemental beginnings. And it just happens to be the story that we'll be taking a look at today. Once, very long ago, there was an ocean, as vast as it was old. This body of water was all that there was, except for Buga. Buga was ever-existing, all-knowing, and omnipotent, responsible for all that was, and regulator for all that ever will be. Buga was ready for something new. With a wave of his hand, Buga set the great ocean aflame. After quite some time, the fire consumed nearly all of the water and gave way to the dry land beneath. Buga then brought forth the light, before giving it a separate but equal partner, the darkness. Making his descent onto land, Buga was interested in immediately creating more to embody this new world. However, before he could get started, he came upon Buninka. Buga went to welcome Buninka into the world he had just created, when Buninka, enraged, claimed that it was in fact he who had brought this world into existence. While Buga was patient, if not rather exasperated, Buninka was snide and aggressive. He snatched Buga's twelve-stringed lyre and prized possession right out of his hands. Buninka broke the instrument in a fit of anger, seeking to destroy anything that Buga held dear. Unable to hold his emotions back any further, 
Buga challenged Buninka to a competition. If Buninka could bring a tree to life in the middle of the remaining ocean, Buga would submit himself to Buninka. But if he were unable to do this, and Buga was able to do this, Buninka would have to bend a knee to Buga. Agreeing eagerly, Buninka swept Buga out of the way and turned his attention to the ocean. Bringing forth a fir tree out of the water, Buninka smiled widely. But this tree was frail and swayed back and forth in the wind, giving the impression that it may snap in half at any moment. Without much effort at all, Buga summoned forth a mighty fir tree that dwarfed Buninka's creation. Grumbling to himself, Buninka bowed deeply to Buga. Unsatisfied with his acquiescence, Buga put his hand to Beninka's head and turned it into iron. The new heft and density of his metal head sent Buninka crashing to the ground. He howled in pain and flailed his remaining limbs about, begging for mercy. Only then was Buga satisfied. Relenting, Buga released Buninka on a simple condition. He was allowed to walk Buga's earth as long as he promised never to harm another. Turning his attention away from the banished and conquered Buninka, Buga began gathering the materials he needed to continue creation. Traveling to the east, Buga collected iron. Traveling to the south, he gathered flame. Traveling to the west, Buga captured water. And when traveling to the north, he acquired the final element. Earth. It was from this earth that he first made flesh and bone. From the iron, he crafted a powerful heart, which he filled with flowing blood that he conjured from the water. Tempering this creation with vitality brought through fire, Buga gave this planet its first intelligent species, human beings. Left to their own inclinations, after quite some time, human beings were vast in number. This is when Buninka made his way back to Buga, demanding Buga give half of his human creation to Buninka. Buga had no more time for competition and no more patience for a good-natured compromise. Sending Buninka deep beneath the surface of the earth, Buga flatly denied Buninka's claim to half of this newly living species. Instead, he gave him dominion over half of the species, only once they were deceased. The truly wicked members of humankind would descend into the center of the earth upon death and be subjects of Beninka in one of twelve differing caves of eternal punishment. And, according to the Tunguzic people spread throughout Russia and China, that is how creation began. Now, what I was gonna do was lean into the Hobbs and Shaw-style adversarial nature of these two cats. Like, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, Boninka is, is kind of a jerk. I mean, straight up trying to lay claim to some stuff he had, he had absolutely nothing to do with at all. But, 
And, uh, this is a feeble argumentative, but, um, I get it. I mean, he did have, he had some type of power, right? I mean, it was a weak tree he brought out the water, but what cat do you know that can make a tree grow immediately out of a body of water just, just by thinking about it? Beninka may have been greedy, but where'd that greed come from? I mean, if his skills were, were honed or helped by the obviously superior Buga, i.e. they work together, wouldn't things have turned out a little bit better than they did? I mean, okay, let's see. Assuming that this is the world that they exist in, this is, it's, it's the world that we have today. And that's not necessarily the best all the time. And, and compounding that, there are 12 underground caves where like, uh, where like uh, 50 billion people, half the humans that have ever lived roughly, and representing the truly evil humans out there, that are being tortured in 12 different ways. Oh, for all time. That does not exactly sound like a win to me. But I digress. It actually would have been that type of argument that I would give to uh, Beninka to, to give some type of ah, ambiguity to the character. And Bugaz's ambiguity is already there, and hey, I'll get into that in a second. I would have had, as they did in the tale, had humanity take a back seat. I mean, it's barely like set dressing here, and I, I'm happy with that. That's totally cool. Leave it to the mythological creatures. Um, I also would have ran with the journey aspect, uh, the gathering of the elements. I'd have had, you know, uh, Beninka, maybe other creatures that you find in the lore pop up in a type of uh, YA comedic adventure style. So being that all of that is how I'd do it, I'm sure that you're all much happier that I just gave you the tale straight up. And speaking of such, what I'm not sure exactly ages the best, I mean, come on, do I really even have to say it? You heard the intro to this episode. Unlike uh, some other works that we've looked into over the past few episodes, there really wasn't any other way to tell this story except for the singularly gendered tale that it is. And truthfully, that's just what it is sometimes. I mean, the main component of feminism is equality, right? You know, which means all individuals being treated equal. I get that. I get that. I abide by that. But if I ever get a choice in any tale that I tell or any fiction that I write, I am probably going to choose non-Duterino most of the time. Or, or better yet... If I get to make fun of the dudes, I'm going to do that even more so. But I don't need to do it 100% of the time. I recognize that. And I, I really don't want to F with something just out of the blue with uh, zero cause or, or reason. Every single story that I've told so far on this podcast, and that, as far as I'm concerned, I will be telling on this podcast at all, is going to be based on some version or some combination of versions that exist in this world. I'm not going to, like I've said before in previous episodes, just make something up whole hog out of the blue. So when you have a story that is nothing except two guys, buttonheads, I may not necessarily be the biggest fan of it myth 
wise, but uh, in this specific case, I really like the obscurity. I mean, I've never heard of this group of people until researching the episode. And additionally, I enjoy the elemental slash shamanistic elements of this story, which takes me to what I think works. Making the one above all a complex entity is cool to me. Buga may have been a supreme creator, but you'll notice I ain't never said all good. Because if there is one thing he's not, it's all good. Read David Hume's The Problem of Evil. How is something all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good? This story gives you the solution. That entity is not. He's all-knowing and all-powerful, yes, but nowhere in any of the explanations of the folklore, the culture, this tale, or Bugai himself did I see a reference to all good. Which I'm glad because homie straight up turned someone's head to metal because they didn't bow good enough. Mojo Jojo himself may have even cringed at that one. I mean, also, where did Buninka come from? Is he Buga's opposite? Was he always there? Did Buninka come about when Buga separated the light from the darkness? I mean, there are a lot of questions that most definitely shade the tale and the position of both characters. You see, one may be able to have more empathy for Buninka if Buga needed that creature to serve a purpose, so he created him solely to play a part, a painful, wicked part that Buninka truly had no will to dispute, but that's a hypothetical theological discussion for another day. So anything that brings up a debate this juicy is moving along the right track to me. And for our fact this episode, we're going to pull a South America. See, I think I'm going to call it South America from now on if anything like this happens, because during our South American episode about the Mapuche people and their flood slash geographical creation story, we gave the tale and the fact from the same region and the same people. I did that because I absolutely loved the fact and I wanted to share it with everyone. Same goes for this week, but to add even more to it, this fact has something to do with multiple past episodes, including the South American episode. The creation story featured today had some heavy symbolism found in many creation tales and mythology the world over. Humanity, as well as the planet, physically being formed by the hands of a deity. A version of the world tree, rising tall and strong here, literally in contrast to a tree that's much weaker. And a supreme creator versus a primary antagonist. It is this struggle between Buga and Buninka that our fact grows from. This creation tale uses our two deities to represent opposite ends of their mystic spectrum. Buga's shamanism and Buninka's witchcraft. The very word shaman is said to have originated from the Tungusic people slash language. Originally, salmon or haman or sahaman. This word found its way into the Russian language through an Orthodox priest that had been exploring Siberia in the 1500s. From there, Dutch travelers continued the word further throughout the next couple of centuries, where it was first published in German, and then later translated into French, and then once again into English. The 1800s ultimately saw a large rise in the use of this word to actually denote a type of religion 
otherwise categorized as not known, which can be pretty problematic. This was basically lumping together a number of peoples and their beliefs as not Christian, not Buddhist, not Islamic, not Taoist, relegated to an umbrella of practices done by those unknown and, more importantly at the time, considered not worthy of further scientific or anthropologic study. In fact, Saman did not have a singular meaning to start with. What had been ascribed to shamanism over the centuries began in simply assigning half-truths or pure speculation into what quote-unquote learned men of the time felt like this shaman would be responsible for or could be feared about. We now know that the current definition of shaman slash shamanism has been romanticized into a simple meaning. A title given to someone that is a ritual specialist. Someone who provides the bridge between humans and nature. However true or untrue, or let's be real, awesome, this definition may be now, or even of more importance back then. I think it is incredibly poignant and necessary to note that the root of a great deal of knowledge accumulated from the Western world was done so during a time when scientific discovery was a fast and loose term when it came to indigenous populations and marginalized people. This is a practice that continues to this day. I think it's important for all of us to recognize our bias, just as we should do the same with our privilege, allowing us to do a much better job of simply listening, especially when communicating with a culture, doubly especially endangered culture, that is simply trying to tell you a story of their people. And that's the show, folks. Thank you so much for coming along with us as we toured Asia and took a deep mini-dive into the folklore behind the Tunguzic people of Russia and China. We would love for you to come along with us each and every episode, but more specifically, next time around when we get to the Mediterranean Basin and finish our first full trip around the world exploring indigenous culture and the folklore that goes along with them. Thank you, all good folks, for your song, Mr. Mischief, which bookends the show. Thank you, Jacqueline, for your definitive podcast cover artwork. And thank you, Arthur, for your artwork giving us our emblematic podcast logo. If at any point in time and or space you would like to shoot us a question or a suggestion, a feeling, or a declaration, please do not hesitate to write us an email at info at coloredfolklore.com. Additionally, or supplementally, feel free to head on over to our social media accounts to see perhaps maybe some additional information about the cultures and the folklore that we go over during our show. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with a side of YouTube and SoundCloud action, all at the handle Colored Folklore, all one word. As is always the case, your one-stop shop for all things colored, all things folklore, and most definitely all things in between. Our website hosts, how waka waka, all the razzmatazz that I just listed, socials in the headers, emails on the contact, allies in the page, support, it's in your hands. If you have the chance, maybe click that donate link, send the show some monies, or jump on and leave a review, or best yet, let someone know about the little corner of the world called colored folklore. Today, in the West, it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I implore you, do not only spend January 18th, hopefully 
educating yourself about the good doctor, educating yourself about the plight of African Americans. But take as much time as you can to inform yourself about the marginalized groups of the world. Don't let your journey into black culture only include MLK Day, Juneteenth, maybe Kwanzaa, and the shortest month of the year, February. Learn about cultures other than your own. Meet people that look different than you. Educate and teach. Teach and educate. And at the end of the day, hear some amazing stories from some amazing folks. This gigantic world that we live on gets smaller each and every day, thanks to a whole lot of technology and even more human ingenuity. So let's try to bring the species together through culture and love, through peace and understanding. Another holiday, another podcast ending with nothing but love. See, I can be not sarcastic if I try. <laughs> <laughs>